Hey, I'm Chris. I'm the new senior pastor here, and it's a joy to welcome you to Trinity this morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to all the families of VBS children who are here maybe visiting this morning. Thanks especially to all those who worked to serve our children this week. It was a joyful thing to see. We are beginning this morning a summer series in the book of Psalms. We're going to spend the summer looking at the hymn book of Jesus. Psalms are a good place to spend our summer. We're going to do that looking at a particular collection of psalms that are ascribed to Asaph. The psalms of Asaph, we find them in Psalm 50 and then Psalms 73 through 83. Asaph was one of David's temple choir directors. And these psalms, though they don't have any particular theme running through them, give us a good chunk of scripture to bite off this summer as we consider what it looks like to live in relationship to our God. Our psalm this morning is one of my favorite psalms in the whole Bible, Psalm 50. So let's read that together, and then we'll take a look at it. Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak to you. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry... I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. And you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for our time. Great God in heaven, we rejoice that you have called us together here by your word, and now you invite us to hear it proclaimed. Lord, we couldn't know you if you didn't reveal yourself to us. You've done that in all of nature, but even more so and savingly in your holy word. This word breathed out by the Holy Spirit 
We pray now that that Holy Spirit, you would be with us, be with me to speak boldly and clearly and truly and be with all of us to see rightly and treasure in these words our one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. God, let me not restrain my lips, and I pray that you would not restrain your mercy from me. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been around a church like Trinity at some point in your life, you've probably heard the phrase, having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? It's an important question. It's a good phrase. It's not actually in the Bible, but it's a good idea. And it draws out the reality that the Christian life and the Christian relationship with God is one of intimate connection. It's not formal ritual separated in some dead uh, formalism, but rather an intimate relationship with God. But perhaps you're like me, and occasionally when you hear that phrase, you feel a little bit insecure or confused. What does it mean to have a personal relationship with God? Do I have one? Is the thing that I'm experiencing week in and week out that thing that everyone else is talking about? We use that phrase, but we don't always take the time to define it, to discuss what it actually looks like to be in relationship with God. We know how to relate to different people in our lives. Some of us have spouses and children and bosses and employees. We have friends, we see strangers, and there are standards and rules for what it looks like to relate to those people. What does it look like to relate to the creator of the universe, the almighty and eternal one who made everything? It's an important question. It's eminently practical and also deeply theological. What does our relationship with God look like? Happily, we're not alone in asking this question. The people of God have been wondering about this since the dawn of creation. And still more happily, God is delighted to tell us. God tells us what it looks like to be in relationship with him. And our psalm this morning, Psalm 50, opens with a scene of God coming down and calling his people together. He speaks and summons the earth. There's a mighty tempest a devouring fire before him, and he says, Gather to me my faithful ones, the ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice, which is a reference to the people of Israel, his covenant people, who in Exodus chapter 24 made a covenant with God. The scene that we see in Psalm 50 isn't the final judgment. He talks about the final judgment at the end of the psalm. This is more like a check-in. Get everybody together, and we're going to talk about how this relationship is going. Kristen and I, um, have a practice, it's a good practice, that is, uh, is less frequent than it should be due to the age of our children. But we've done this where we'll get together a couple times a year to have, get away for a week and have a retreat and ask ourselves about our relationship. How is it going? How are we loving one another? What, how have I hurt Kristen? How has she loved me well? That's usually how the, how the conversation <laughs> goes. And it's good. It's good to check in to see where we want to grow, where we need to grow in our relationship. And God in this psalm is doing something similar as he gathers the people of Israel and he says, I've got some things to say. He's going to testify against them, he says, but he's also going to call them into right relationship with him. 
Our outline for this morning as we consider this psalm is as follows. You're taking notes. First, we're going to look at the right relationship to God. Then we're going to look at an old covenant picture of that relationship in sacrificial offerings. And finally, we're going to consider the new covenant way of that relationship. So the right relationship, the old covenant picture, and then the new covenant way. First, the right relationship. So verses 14 and 15 are the heart of this psalm. Um, They're a beautiful collection of verses, and that's where I want to start as we think about what is it that God says, here's how I want you to relate to me. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. It says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So here's the whole sermon, the whole point in one sentence. Our relationship with God is to be a relationship marked by dependence and gratitude. God wants us to need him. That's the pattern. He wants us to be needy and thankful, reliant upon him. That cycle in verse 15 that we see, calling upon him, him delivering us, us glorifying him, that's it. God wants us to call upon him in trouble. He delights to deliver us. And in response, we praise and thank him in gratitude. That's what it looks like to be in relationship with God or what it should look like. Now, today is Father's Day. This has already been announced. And it's okay if you forgot. It's the celebration of the lesser parent. And so it's, it's here <laughs> in June. People are not even here. It's fine. Parenting provides a lot of really helpful illustrations for our relationship to God. But I want to think about this morning one way in which parenting is different, okay? Kids grow up. That's a a fundamental feature of parenting. It's the goal of parenting. My goal is for my children to move from complete dependence upon me to independence. We launch them into the world where they are going to go and be adults, or they're going to be able to take care of themselves. Diapers, praise God, are not forever. We eventually get out of the diaper stage. Kristen has made a rash promise to our children that when all the kids are out of diapers, we will get a dog. <laughs> mark, mark that here. We'll see. John is two and, and approaching potty training, and I, she will either never, never potty train him or... <laughs> Or find a way to squeeze out of that one. Or ha- maybe, maybe we'll have a new baby just to get diapers back. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. As our kids grow, they need us less. That's parenting. That is not God. Our relationship to God is not one in which we graduate from dependence to independence. God has no desire for you to ever leave the diaper stage, so to speak. Our relationship with God is always to be one of dependence. The psalm draws this out as it corrects two misunderstandings that the people of Israel seem to be having. The first is this. Look at verses 8 to 13. The first misunderstanding is that the people of Israel think that God needs them. These burnt offerings, which are continually before God, we'll talk about the significance of the sacrifice in a moment, but they were offered morning and evening. 
such that the temple or the tabernacle was effectively a pit barbecue. My seminary professor said, if you want to experience the sensory realities of the temple, go to a Texas barbecue smokehouse, which is a delightful place to be, which makes me think that the temple must have been a delightful place to be. Constantly burning offerings to the Lord. And the people of Israel have misunderstood those sacrifices, thinking that they are feeding God. That God must really like brisket, and so day and night, morning and evening, the people of God are offering these sacrifices to him. And God addresses them and says, that's got nothing to do with it. He asks rhetorically, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And the answer is no. And then in one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible, it's on my computer monitor to remind me, God says, if I was hungry, if I were hungry, I think is the way it's true. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. And I need to hear that every day. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. God says, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Every beast in the forest is mine. You are not feeding me. I do not need you. No, you need me. That's their first mistake. And it's tied to their second mistake, which is that not only do they think that God needs them, they think that they don't always need God. And that's what's going on in verses 16 to 21. He calls them the wicked, but he's still addressing the people of Israel. These are those who recite his law and claim his covenant, but they hate discipline. They take God's words and they cast them behind them. They participate in and give approval to clear violations of God's law. God, their creator and designer, hands them an image-bearing Lamborghini to drive in their lives, hands you and me that, and gives them an instruction manual. Here's how you drive the thing. Here's how you do it beautifully. And they say, yeah, I don't need that. I'm just going to figure it out. That's the error of the people of Israel here. They don't think they need God. A key insight here worth noting is that obedience is downstream of dependence. So their dependence on God, if they were dependent on God, they would be dependent on his word and obedient. Because they are not, they are displaying the fact that they don't really think they need him. These are the two mistakes. God, you need us, and we don't, we don't really need you. And to that, God says, no, that's totally backwards. The relationship I want with you is one where you are dependent upon me. Here it's worth pausing and asking ourselves, how are we doing? Where do you see your relationship to God? And where are you tempted to see it wrongly like the people of Israel? Where do you act like God needs you? I see this in, in my negotiations with God. Thinking that my acts of service or my acts of devotion, something God's really looking for, and if he gets them, he's going to be happy. And he's going to give something back to me. I see it in my bitterness when that doesn't actually work out. God, you needed this. And I gave it to you. Why aren't you being nice back to me? We see it in our attitudes to serving the church. This is especially true for pastors, but it's true for all of us. I think that I'm pretty much indispensable to the kingdom of God pretty often. 
If I wasn't here, this whole thing would fall apart. If Trinity wasn't here, this whole thing would fall apart. And God says, no, I don't, I don't, need, I don't need Chris Colquitt. I don't need this church. I got it. We see this in our cultural anxieties. Are you anxious for God? Do you look around and think, God doesn't seem to be winning? We see injustice and violence. We see cultural decay and religious decline. And we're worried for God. He needs me to do something. It's great to go work for justice and truth and goodness in the world, but do we do it with a heart of anxiety that ultimately denies or questions the all-powerful and all-sufficient nature of God? God does not need you or me. And where do you act? Where do I act? Like, I don't need God. This one's a lot easier. And it's happened a lot today already. I think I've got it. God's words are helpful suggestions, but I'm going to pretty much figure it out myself. Where in your life are you casting God's word behind you? Where have you stopped fighting sin in your life? Just said, that's okay. That one, I'm going to do this way. We do what we want. We do what feels right. And where are you, brothers and sisters, discontent being the one who needs God. Our kids, um, as they enter the stage, and maybe your children did the same thing, around the John's age, we're still changing their diapers, but they start to think that they can do it. Y'all ever had this experience? You're, you're wiping their stinky bottom, right? And they reach out to grab, either grab the wipe, right, or just grab, grab themselves. And that makes a massive mess, right? <laughs> That's our heart. That's our temptation. That's the temptation of the people of Israel. They're, they're tired of being dependent upon God, and they're reaching down to wipe themselves when, in fact, they should be relying on God. There's a vivid image for you for today, okay? Um, God desires your dependence and the gratitude that flows from it. Call on him. He delivers us. We thank him and glorify him. That's the pattern he wants. That's the relationship he is looking for. Okay, our second point then, we've seen that. Now, I want us to look a little deeper into this psalm and see something that maybe we don't see on first glance, and that is a picture in the old covenant of this relationship. Because God, for the people of Israel, set up for themselves a system by which they could understand this relationship of dependence. And that system was the sacrificial system, the temple, the tabernacle, and all the ritual that went into it. He gave them pictures and patterns that showed them practically, day by day, what it looked like to be in a relationship to God. Now, as Christians, we have a limited familiarity with this, um, but I want to give us just a slight bit more so that we can understand what's going on in this psalm. There, there are actually two different kinds of sacrifices mentioned here. Look at verse 8, you see a reference to burnt offerings, and then in verses 14 and 23, we see references to sacrifices of thanksgiving. Now, these are technical terms for two different types of sacrifices under the Old Testament law, and here I'm going to give you just a real brief tutorial in Old Testament sacrificial law. If you want, um, if you want to see this in the text, you can look at Leviticus 1, 3, and 7 in particular. 
Lord willing, we'll do a whole sermon series on Leviticus someday. You may not be willing for that, but I think it'd be fun. <laughs> the burnt offering, this first offering that's mentioned, is, is and was the most common offering that was to be offered. It was offered every morning and evening, as we already said. And the method was to take the whole animal and burn it entirely. Nothing was left to be eaten by the priests or by the worshiper. And the meaning and, and significance of this sacrifice was an atoning sacrifice. And this is what we typically think of when we think of the sacrifices under the Old Testament. We deserve the wrath and judgment of God. And so the people of Israel would bring from their folds animals to offer before God in their place, placing their hand on the animal before it went on the altar. And so the fire that consumed the bull was meant for us, but the bull stood in our way. That was the significance of that sacrifice. It's the one that we're most familiar with as Christians because it ties into the crucifixion. But it's not the only type of sacrifice, and it's not the only type of sacrifice mentioned in this text. The sacrifices of thanksgiving, the second type, which are mentioned in 15 and 23, don't actually refer to a generic abstract sense of gratitude. Like, don't offer me sacrifices, but just be thankful. We'll get there. There is truth to that. They're actually, though, referring to a, a technical thing, a particular kind of sacrifice. And it was a particular kind of a particular kind of sacrifice, which was the peace offering. The peace offering was this other sort of sacrifice offered to God and instituted in Leviticus. And the thanksgiving offering was one version of the peace offering. This was a very different offering than the burnt offering. The peace offering was optional. It was not every day. It was on occasion as you needed it. It was an offering offered in thanksgiving. There was another offered for vows, which is also in view here in Psalm 50. And it was not meant to cover sins. This was not an atoning sacrifice. It was meant to celebrate and affirm the offerer's covenant relationship to God. So when God delivered you or when you were praying for deliverance from God, you would bring a peace offering to God. It was thanksgiving, celebrating his deliverance. And the other key feature of this offering, which is my favorite part of it, is that you didn't burn the whole thing. You brought the animal to the altar, and certain parts were burned, but the rest, this delicious barbecue feast, was delivered back to the offerer who took it home and feasted in celebration of God's faithfulness with his family. So these are two very different kinds of sacrifices. One is a somber reminder of our sin, and the other is a grateful celebration of God's faithfulness. And in Psalm 50, it seems that the people of Israel are misunderstanding the burnt offering and neglecting the thanksgiving offering. The burnt offerings, which are supposed to be a daily reminder of their need for God, they've somehow misinterpreted into being a daily reminder of God's need for them. We already talked about that. God says, no, that's not the case. And what I actually want from you is these sacrifices of thanksgiving. And the key thing to see here is that these sorts of sacrifices, this, the peace offerings, are the kind of sacrifices that a worshiper in Israel would be offering if they had the heart that we were describing about, that relationship. As you're dependent upon God, as he delivers you, 
And as you rejoice, these are the sorts of offerings you would be bringing regularly to God. And God says, that's what I'm looking for. This beautiful picture of God's provision for his people. This is the picture and pattern that God sets up to point his people to this way of grateful dependence. But it pointed to more than that. Because it pointed not just to the sacrificial realities that the people of Israel could enjoy, but it pointed beyond them. And that's where I want to finish our time this morning. It pointed beyond them to Jesus as the sacrificial system always does. And here we can think about the new covenant way that we find. Our psalm ends with harsh words of judgment. The psalmist says that only those who offer thanksgiving as sacrifice and order their way rightly will be saved, but those who forget God will be torn apart without deliverance. And as we dig into Psalm 50, we recognize On the one hand, the beauty of that dependence, what a beautiful thing it is to live before God in total dependence upon him, bringing these offerings of of thanksgiving. But we also recognize that we don't do it. I forget God. I relate to him as though he needed me quite often. I'm tempted to do it in this very moment, in this very act of preaching. And I live as though I don't need him, casting behind me his words and doing whatever I want. I am, you are, the disobedient toddler reaching for the baby wipes, trying to do it himself and making a massive mess of things. And so the end of this psalm is is a hard end for you and for me because there is a threat that salvation is not for us. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ fulfills Psalm 50. Jesus Christ is the one who performs the faithful relationship with God that is called for in this text. He took on our humanity and offered to God the perfect life of covenant faithfulness, completely dependent upon and obedient to the Father, such that at the very end of his life, What is that prayer he prays before he goes to the cross? Not my will, but yours be done. And he goes offering a sacrifice that is better than the continual burnt offerings, offering himself once and for all for the satisfaction and forgiveness of his people's sins. His sacrifice fulfills and abrogates the Old Testament ceremonial law. But even more, it opens a way into this relationship with God that we could not do on our own. My salvation as a Christian, your salvation as a Christian, the salvation that is offered to you this morning if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, is not you having the best relationship with God so that he will accept you. The salvation that is offered is not on the basis of my relationship to God, but on the basis of Christ's relationship to God. Christ, in fulfilling Psalm 50, opens the way for us. And the beauty of the gospel, and it's here in the background of this text, the beauty of the gospel is this. When we are saved, God could have done it a number of ways, I guess, graciously, but he does it through faith, saving faith. 
And here's what's really cool about saving faith, because the thing that connects us to Jesus, the thing that allows his righteousness to be ours, what does that look like? Well, it looks like Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15. It is a cry wrought by the Spirit in our hearts of total dependence. The faith that unites us to Jesus, the faith that Christ works in us by the power of his Holy Spirit, is an empty hand that reaches out and says, I can't do it. I need your deliverance. I am unable on my own. God, in saving us, takes us down to the studs and rebuilds our life with this spirit-wrought faith that conforms to Psalm 14, Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15. All by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this phrase, the sacrifice of thanksgiving, is something that can apply to us even today. The Hebrew took us back to Leviticus, but the Greek translation of that in the Septuagint actually takes us forward into the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, 15 reads this way. Through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That phrase, sacrifice of praise, is exactly the same Greek term that we find in Psalm 50. After demonstrating the glorious heights and superiority of Christ's sacrifice in the rest of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews still says, and now offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God. That beautiful imagery of the peace offering where we bring our offering to God where he says, this is, my, this is my thing, but I'm giving it back to you. We have that in the Christian life. God prepares a feast for us, even as we bring our offering to him. God doesn't give us his cattle. He doesn't give us his goats. He doesn't give us every bird in the sky. He gives us his son. And he who gave us his son, who did not spare his own son, he will freely give us all things. And so the Christian life is lived in Psalm 50, verses 14 to 15. Grounded, not in us conjuring up this particular attitude, but in us looking to Jesus in desperation and need and resting on him alone. And as we do, as we live this life of need and dependence, this life of gratitude, all of our life, Obedience, service, joy, devotion flows out of the fact that we have nothing and God provides everything. This is the way of the Christian life. Giving up your own independence. Stop trying to do it yourself. Receiving from Christ all that he offers. Walk in this way, brothers and sisters. It is the way of life. We pray. God in heaven, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, and we pray that you would make these words more and more true in our hearts. Lord, we are prone to independence. It's in our blood. We don't like being needy, and yet we have made a complete mess of that. And you invite us 
and restore us by the power of your spirit into true dependence upon you. God, would you do that work in our hearts? Would you make it more and more true for those who know you and for those who do not know you this morning? Would they reach out with an empty hand, despairing of all that they bring, receiving Christ, the all-sufficient one? We ask this in his name. Amen.